Second Timothy chapter number 4. Over the past two weeks on Sunday nights, we've preached about a little phrase that the Apostle Paul uses. He uses it four times in total in the New Testament record, but only three times in the Pauline epistles. And uh, as he's writing to people, he makes a very bold statement, uh, but I believe it's a statement we all can attain to. I believe that what Paul says in this statement three times, that you and I can say if we'll endeavor to. And so he uses the little phrase, I'm ready. Now, when we speak of readiness, we speak of forethought, we speak of preparation, we think, uh, think of uh, mental resolve. You know, there's a lot of things that folks are ready for, but they're not ready for. Any of you ever had anything like You thought you was ready, but then when it happened, you found out you weren't quite as ready as you thought. Amen? There's been some things in my life. There's some things I guess maybe you can't be ready for, but I'm thankful the Lord is ready for all things. Nothing takes Him by surprise. But I believe in these three areas we most certainly can stand ready in the way that the Apostle Paul did. In Romans chapter 1, he says that I am ready to preach the gospel to them that are at Rome also. I believe you and I, we can stand ready to share God's redemption with a lost and dying world. In fact, I would suggest this, that when we don't stand ready to share God's redemption, uh, we're not fulfilling that great commission that God has called us to, and we're not living up to the expectation God has for our lives. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I am ready to come unto you a third time. Now, he's writing to the church at Corinth. and he had a little bit of a history with this church at Corinth. He had already had to write one letter to them to correct some things, to try to set some things right in that local body. And he's writing a second letter to them and trying to uh, give them some advice and some words of wisdom. And he says he's going to come to him a third time. But he acknowledges that when he does, he acknowledges he ain't been treated proper in times past. I know that ain't the best English, but that's how we talk around here. Amen. He, he ain't been ready, and, or he ain't been treated right in times past. But he knows that when he goes to them a third time, he will probably not be treated right this third time that he comes to them. But he says, I'm still ready to come to you. Let me say that until you're ready to serve God without gratitude, without gain, and without glory, you're not really ready to serve God. There's been lots of folks like the idea of serving God. They just didn't like serving God. Amen? Lots of folks that they thought it sounded like a pretty good idea, but then when they started doing it, found out it wasn't always easy, they pretty soon gave up. But Paul says, I am ready to serve God's redeemed. I'm ready to do that. And then this third time, the final time in Paul's life, let's begin reading in verse number 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. As he writes to young Timothy, these are, as it were, the, the, closed, uh, the closing words of Paul's life that are recorded in Scripture. The Word of God says this, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. By the way, we're seeing that fulfilled all around us today. Nobody wants a preacher anymore, they want a teacher. I believe a good preacher ought to teach the Word of God. I'm not adverse or opposed to uh, the teaching of the Word of God, but now nobody wants an old-fashioned God-called preacher. They want a teacher now in these days that we live in. Paul said that time would come. He says, "...and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables." Well, what do we do in these days? "...but watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry." For I am now ready to be offered. 
and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Let's read verse 6 once more, and then we'll pray. Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us. I pray now that You give strength as it's needed. Lord, that the unction and power of the Holy Ghost would be in the preaching of Your Word this evening. Lord, that You gain glory. Father, that men might see more of You and less of me tonight. Father, we love You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The first time Paul makes this statement, he says, I'm ready to share God's redemption with a lost and dying world. The second time that he makes this statement, he says, I'm ready to serve God's redeemed in a cold and unfair world. But the final time that he makes this statement, he says, I am ready to stand at God's reckoning when I leave this world and go to meet my Lord. Paul had already given us this word of divine inspired truth when he said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us has an appointment that we will keep if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We will one day stand and give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. A lot of the folks you hear nowadays in the marginal Christianity that is so pervasive in society will make statements like this. They'll say, well, only God can judge me. You ever heard somebody say that before? I find it funny to me that the folks that say only God can judge me somehow believe He never will. When the truth of the matter is that that's true, God can and will judge us one day. One day you will stand and give an account for the things that you've done, for the way that you've behaved, for the way that you've lived. Now, there is a terrifying note in that song. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men when he spoke of the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know about you, but I know there's going to be a lot of things I'm going to have to give an account for on that day that I don't look forward to giving an account to. But I understand this truth as well, that it does not have to be a day that is dreaded. If we can say like Paul did when he comes to the end of his life, he says, I am ready for my departure. I am ready one day to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am confident in this truth that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I don't know about you, but when I come to the end of my life, whenever that may be, I want to be able to say like Paul did, that I'm ready to meet that day. I think often of Stonewall Jackson, and uh, most if you if you read the Civil War history or anything like that, uh, Stonewall Jackson got his name one day when he was out on the battlefield and the bullets were whizzing by, and General Jackson was riding up and down the ranks, exhorting his men to go on and to fight on, and bullets flying all around him. One of the men, and I'm sure some of you could tell this story much better than me, but one of the men shouted out and said, Look there, General Jackson, standing as a stone wall in front of the enemy. And from henceforth he carried that moniker of Stonewall Jackson. And they used to ask him how it was that he came by that name and why it was that he did not fear death. And he's a very fascinating character. It would not be ill-spent time to study his life. I believe you gained some help from it. But he said that he believed that God had an appointed time for every single human being to die. And he knew that until that appointed time came, that there was nothing that could take him out of this world. But by the same token, when that appointed time came, there was nothing that could keep him within this world, but that he would keep that appointment. You might look at someone like General Jackson and say, there's a man that's ready to stand at God's reckoning. 
The Apostle Paul was such a man. I've said this before, that Paul basically only spoke of two days in his life. He spoke of today, the day that he lived in. But he spoke of that day, the day in which he'd given account for the way that he had lived. And here again, he is facing death and facing this reality with a calm assurance and confidence of a man that's lived his life, not perfect, not spotless, not sinless, I'm sure not without regret, but a man that has lived his saved life in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God help us all to live in such a way as that. I want you to notice three things in this passage that I believe was the reason he could make such a bold statement. I want you to look at verse 6 with me again and notice the reality that he held to be truth. He said this, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, the Apostle Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. If history is accurate, then uh, it would tell us that Paul was beheaded under the command and under the order of the Roman Emperor Nero. But Paul understood that though Nero may sign the paper, though Nero may give the command, though Nero uh, may uh, have ill will towards this man of God, that it was not Nero that held that grand appointment book that settles down where each and every one of us will leave this world, but there was a mightier hand and a more sovereign hand that held that appointment book. And Paul understood this truth that there was an an appointment that was implied in this passage. He says it's the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, Paul understands it's not just chance and it's not just random, but that God has an appointed distinct time for his life and for your life and for my life. You know, I'm, I'm somewhat of a young man, younger than a lot of folks, older than a few But, uh, you know, as a young man, there is a tendency sometimes to feel ten foot tall and bulletproof. You ever heard that phrase before? If there could be one uh, difficult truth that most of us grapple with that I would advise young people to understand and comprehend, not that they might live in fear of it, but that they might make uh, good use of the time that God has granted them with, it would be this truth that if the Lord tarries His coming, despite how you feel, despite how healthy you are, despite all the plans that you have, one day you will meet death. There is a set down time for you, and I don't know when it is, And Paul doesn't know when it is. He understands that it's probably soon. But we're going to see here in a moment that he denotes it might even be sooner than he expects. The reality is that this time that we have is a finite amount of time to do something for the Lord Jesus Christ with. with, And it's not going to go on forever. I know we think it will. But one of these days, you and I, we're going to run out of time to do all the things that we said we were going to do for Jesus Christ. When we said, one day I'm going to be a great soul winner, well, one of these days we're going to run out of time to do that. We say, well, I'm going to get faithful to the Lord's house. Well, one day we're going to run out of time to do that. Well, I'm going to pray for my kids and my grandkids. Well, one of these days you're going to run out of time to do that. And I do not know when that will happen, but I know there is a time that you and I are racing towards. There is an appointed time for us to leave this world. We see the appointment he implies. I want you to notice the aspect that he emphasizes. This sort of grabbed my attention. How many of you have read this passage before? Sure. How many of you have read it at least ten times? At least fifty times? At least a hundred times? How many of you would lie just to keep from people thinking bad about you? Sure. (laughs) But there was something that jumped out at me as I read this passage that I would never noticed before. Now, if you and I, when we talk about death, you know what we talk about? We talk about where we're going when we die. Isn't that true? The preacher will get up, and I've done it, and I'll do it again. I'm not ashamed that I do it, but I will get up, we'll preach on heaven, and preach on the eternal bliss of one day being with the redeemed, and and more than anything, with the Redeemer. 
We'll talk about how we got it settled when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. And, and oftentimes as we near the end of our journey in this life, and you know this to be true if you spend any time around those uh, that are in their uh, twilight years, then you know that as people come to the end of their life, they often look forward to the day when they'll leave the sorrows and troubles and trials and go to a place where there'll be none of those things. And oftentimes we talk about what we're going to when we leave this world. But I want you to notice how prepared man talks. Now, I'm not talking about how hopeful man talks, but let's see how prepared man talks. He says, the time of what? Of my departure is at hand. Paul doesn't emphasize what he's going to. Paul emphasizes what he's leaving behind. Now, you know why that is? Because he had something worth leaving behind. Now, I understand Paul could, in a way, be emphasizing the fact that he will leave the sorrows. But I don't believe in the context of our passage that's what Paul's talking about because he's going to go on to talk about what he's done for Jesus Christ. And he's saying this, I'm leaving all these things behind as a testimony for what Christ has done in my life. We need to understand that one of these days we are going to leave those things. I've already preached it. I'm not going to over-preach it. But suffice it to say that one of these days finished is going to be written on your life. And what will the story be when it is? How many, listen, how many folks will you have witnessed to? How many, how many times will you have got a hold of God in prayer? How many times will you have, uh, have faced someone with the truth in love? How many times will you have sided with God over siding with the world? One of these days, you're going to leave these things. You're going to depart from these things. You're going to leave some things behind. Now, if the Lord tarries His coming, there's going to be a generation that's going to come after you. And what are they going to see when they look at your life? Are they going to see someone that face death with preparedness because they live life with purpose? Or are they going to see someone that muddled around life until the stopwatch finally ran out and they left this world dreading to have to face the judgment seat of Christ? When Paul says, I'm leaving, he talks about some things he's leaving. But he acknowledges the fact that those things are truly left. One day your last prayer will be prayed. Your last tithe will be given. Your last testimony will be given. Your last gospel witness will take place. Whatever it is in your life, you're leaving them one of these days. What kind of shape will you leave them in? And then I want you to notice thirdly, we see not only the appointment he implies and the aspect that he emphasizes, but I want you to notice the awareness of imminence that he had of these things. He says this, the time of my departure. Now that denotes the idea that there is a time. But Paul acknowledges that though there is an appointed time, and it is appointed unto man once to die, Paul will keep that appointment. He acknowledges that that particular time is known only to the God of heaven and not to himself, because he says this, it's at hand. Now, I don't know how much time passed between when Paul wrote these words and when finally the guard came marching down the corridor and walked him away in chains to meet a chopping block. I do not know how much time passed between when the ink dried and when Paul's blood was shed. But I know this, that Paul understood that it might happen before he ever reached the chopping block. The truth of the matter is, we don't know when our life will end. None of us do. Uh, there's people, I promise you, listen, there's people that planned on celebrating with family this Christmas that instead are holding funerals they didn't plan for. There are people that anticipated joining with their friends and enjoying this week as a time uh, of celebration of the Lord's birth that instead are having to make arrangements at a funeral home or are sitting with a blank-faced stare of unbelievableness at a hospital, not willing to cope with the news that's being given to them. I'm just merely saying this. You don't know when that time's going to come. And you may think you have a thousand years, but you don't. It could happen at any moment. It's at hand. 
I've shared with you before, and, and I, you know, God does things for a reason. How many of you believe that? God does things for a reason. The, the, I've shared this with you so many times, most of you can finish what I'm about to tell you without me finishing it. But the, the first two funerals that I ever did, and I wasn't even in ministry at the time. I just, God was stirring in my heart, and I was preaching some, but I, I wasn't in what you'd call full-time ministry or anything like that. But I had folks come to me and ask me to do funerals. And the first two funerals that I did, the first one that I ever did was of a 75-day-old infant. 75 days, not years, not months, not weeks, days of a 75-day-old infant. No, no bigger than a loaf of bread. No rhyme, no reason. Didn't make sense. But death doesn't always make sense. The next funeral that I did was of my grandfather who was in his 70s. And it gave me this sober understanding of death that it comes for all ages, all types, all classes, all races, all tax brackets. doesn't matter what your situation in life, you're not assured of tomorrow. So you better do with today something worth doing with it. Because you don't know that you'll have tomorrow. I don't say that to scare you or to startle you, but I do say it to sober you to the reality that you're not promised another day. You're not promised another opportunity. There's no telling how many people have died and went to hell planning on getting saved tomorrow. No telling how many people have left this world and left their loved ones in a lost condition because they planned on witnessing to them tomorrow, but they uh, used cheaply the day that God had blessed them with. They valued too greatly the tomorrow that may and didn't ever come, and they wasted the opportunity that God had given Paul says it's at hand it could be at any moment and certainly it could for you and me I believe because the reality that he held he could say this he understood life and death and time and eternity but I think number two because of the record that he held he could say this look what it says in verse number seven he says I have fought a good fight I have finished my course I have kept the faith now there's lots of folks say that that don't really need to say it but Paul could say it And I'm interested with how he says it. Now, I want you to notice, before we ever talk about what he did, I want you to notice how he says it. Now, if if you and I had been writing this, this is how we would have said it. We would have said, I've conquered the enemy. I've won the race. And I've propagated the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul did not say this. Now, I would ask you this. Could Paul have said that? Most certainly he could have. There's everybody, ever anybody that walked this earth aside from the incarnate Son of God that could have made that statement. It was the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul certainly could have said that he had conquered the enemy in that he had faced down the devils of hell. He had stood against the powers of darkness. He had witnessed not only in the lowest and dirtiest streets in Rome, but also in the palace of Caesar himself. If ever there was anybody that had gotten victory through Jesus Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. Do you remember what he said in the book of Philippians? He said that some preach Christ under contention. Some preach Him uh, for the right reasons. He said some folks are talking bad about me. Some are talking good about me. But he says these things have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. You know what he's saying? He's saying they meant it for bad, but God turned it for good. The devil tried to put me in chains, but the chains became the bells with which I rang the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the New Testament church and to a lost and dying world. He sought to put me in chains to take me out of Jerusalem, but his chains put me in Caesar's palace and birthed a church in Rome. God has done great things in my life. He could have said I conquered the enemy, but he didn't. He could have said he won his race. You know, when you think about the Apostle Paul, and we talked a little bit about this last week in Sunday school, we have this, these preconceived notions about Paul. 
you know, we, we view Paul as being, you know, sort of the head honcho amongst the apostles. You know, like they all got together and Paul sat at the head of the table and he asked the blessing over the food and everybody walked by and kissed his ring and everything. But that's not the reality of the history of Paul. You know that Paul was met with much caution and much distrust when first he was born again and came to meet those disciples that had walked with the Lord. They didn't trust him. They knew him as Saul of Tarsus, a bloody and brutal man that had carried away in chains those that had claimed the name of Christ, and they didn't trust him. And in a lot of ways, Paul carried that testimony, except where he could eradicate it with the testimony of what happened on the Damascus Road. That testimony continued to stay with him. I mean, everywhere he went, they said, this is Paul. This is Paul. This is Saul of Tarsus. This is the one that persecuted the church. And there was sort of a disdain met with the Apostle Paul. And when they looked at the other disciples, they was willing to hear John, they was willing to hear Peter, they was willing to hear James. But who was this rabble-rouser, this Johnny-come-lately, that had showed up after he had already held the coats of the men that stoned Stephen? What right did he have to share in this blessed New Testament church? Certainly he started off behind the rest of the crowd when he ran his race. But when you come down to the end of the New Testament, I'd venture to say that for every one person that can quote from First or Second Peter, you'll find 25 that can quote from one of the Pauline epistles. It was Paul that God had used to reveal the mysteries of the New Testament church, the mysteries of the, of the harmony of grace and law, of the better way of the Lord Jesus Christ as shown to us in the book of Hebrews. You see, if you were to look at Paul, you'd say, there's a man that won the race. I mean, he left Peter, James, and John in his dust, and he won the race. But Paul doesn't say, I won the race. And certainly when we look at a man that says he's kept the faith, our inclination would be to say, no, he didn't keep the faith, he shared the faith. Uh, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. I believe that with my heart. And I understand God's a sovereign God. God could have used anybody, but God didn't use anybody. God used the Apostle Paul. And the reason you and I sit here today is because Paul had a mind to go into Asia and the Holy Ghost forbid him and said, no, don't go east, go west. Let me tell you something. If it wasn't for that, that moving of the Spirit of God, very likely uh, you and I could be sitting here making beheading videos as they lament our brutality over in the Far East. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ took a westward swing by the sovereign will of God. And you and I sit here today a product of the New Testament missionary work of the Apostle Paul. If there was anybody that had shared the faith, it was the Apostle Paul. But that's not what Paul says. Now, why didn't he say that? Well, here's why he didn't say it, because not everybody can conquer, but everybody can fight. Not everybody can win, but everybody can run. And not everybody will share the faith like Paul did, but everybody can keep the faith. And he describes three areas of his life. Let me just quickly touch on them. I'm not really going to preach them. But I would say that he uh, was a good soldier, wasn't you? He said, I fought a good fight. And to fight a good fight, you notice again, he didn't say, I won the fight. He said, I fought a good fight. I put everything that I have into this spiritual warfare that I was employed and enlisted in. Paul described it this way. He said, we fight not as one that, that you know, uh, and I don't want to misquote it, and I'm sick, and it's a wonder I'm even standing here, but he says, not, not as one that beateth the air. In other words, he says, not, not as uncertainly. In other words, Paul says, listen, I'm not just taking wild haymakers. This is precision warfare. I know who my enemy is. I can see the wiles of the devil. I can see what he's trying to do. And I'm fighting like there's a real enemy because there is a real enemy. God help you and me to fight like there's a real enemy because there's a real enemy. 
He hates you. He hates your marriage. He hates your kids. He hates your home. He hates your church. He hates your testimony. And he wants to wreck it at every chance that he can get. And you better wake up to that truth. And you better fight like there's a real enemy because there is a real enemy. And you may not always win every battle, but the one that won the war is the one that is in you. And greater is he that is in you that is in the world. And I know this, that though you may not win every battle, you sure can fight a good fight. He was a good soldier. He didn't give in. But then I'd like you to note that he was a good sprinter. He didn't give up. He says, I, I, I ran a, a good race. said, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Now, again, I'd suggest to you that he finished it quicker and in better form than anybody else. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I finished my course. In other words, as I come to the end of my life, I didn't give up and quit serving God. I was talking to somebody the other day. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate those that are investing their retirement years in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of folks that believe retirement is for you to go, you know, buy a boat, lay around up at the lake, and, you know, never, never go to church no more. But I believe the greatest use you can make of your retirement years is to employ them in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has blessed us with the time. And I'm not trying to speak out of turn. I understand that, there, that you know, it, it's not something I can identify or empathize with. But it doesn't mean I can't appreciate that those, that everybody would step back and say, no, it's okay. You don't have to do as much as you used to do. Is saying, no, I'm not going to do as much as I used to do. I'm going to do more than I used to do with the time that God has blessed me with. I, I, I'm not going to peter out and quit these last few miles of the race. I'm going to pick up steam and I'm going to keep going all the way to the end. Now, you and I, we can do that. We may not run faster than the guy next to us, but we can all finish the course. Don't none of us have to give up and quit serving God. And I understand as folks get older, they may not be able to, do, uh, the, to serve the Lord like they once did or in the same manner, but that don't mean they ought to quit serving God. And you ought to use these years of your life, whatever it is. And, that, and that's true. Listen, that's true if you're 12, 13, 14 years old. That's true if you're 72, 74, 75, 85, 105, 125. You ought to use all the time that God has given you to finish this course. I wonder how many folks God could have done something great with them in those twilight years, but they just gave up, said, it's all right, it's my time to kick back. When those were the last few miles. I mean, hey, listen, if nobody's paying attention the first few miles of the race, you better believe everybody's paying attention the last few miles of a race. Let me Come on with me. Isn't that true? How many of y'all, I know y'all watch them horse races, you bunch of carnal gamblers, and uh, nobody's paying attention when they first come out of the gate because really they might get a nose ahead or they might get a tail length ahead, but at the end of the day there's a lot more race left. But you'd better believe when they come around that last curve and they're headed down the home stretch and, and, and the nostrils are flaring and the lungs are beating and they're just inches between different... You better believe everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat and they're watching. You know why? They want to see how that horse is going to finish that race. Let me tell you something. You've got people in your life they are looking to see how you're going to finish this race. So you ought to finish it in a way that will make the Lord proud. I, I think he said, I'm a good soldier and I was a good sprinter, but he notes that I was a good steward. He says this, I didn't give out over all the years that I could have. When he says, I've kept the faith, the idea is not that he has bogarted or hoarded the faith, but rather that he has been entrusted with the truth of the Word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, throughout all the years when there was a lot of pressure to go a bunch of different ways, I didn't go a bunch of different ways. I just stayed true to the Word of God. Now, I don't believe that's boasting. I believe that's reality, don't you? You know how easy it would have been for Paul to go the wrong way? 
Every time that you turn, with, with every, I want you to listen carefully, with every New Testament heresy, every heresy that crept into the New Testament church, Paul could have been the leader of it if he chose to be so. Let me give you one example. I could give you 20. But one example is the Gnosticism that crept in that John fought against. Now, Gnosticism, and I'm not going to review, we did a 12 weeks on First John, I'm not going to review it all, but Gnosticism is they basically believe that God gave them a message that He hadn't given everybody else. Let me tell you something, when it came to the Apostle Paul, God had given him a message. Not that He hadn't given anybody else, but that He was choosing to give everyone else through the Apostle Paul. He spoke of the mysteries of God that had been revealed to him. He spoke of the revelation of Jesus Christ that had been known to him. If Paul had wanted to, he could have been the head of the Gnostics. What about the Judaizers in the book of Galatians? They come along and they said, hey, you've got to be circumcised to be saved and you've got to keep the works of the law to, to remain saved or they make you more intrinsically saved. Paul said this in the book of Philippians. He said, have they whereof to boast in the flesh? I'm more. I'm more. He said, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of Hebrews. As touching uh, the works of the righteousness, which is of the law, he said, I was blameless. He said, as persecuting, uh, uh, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. There's ever anybody that could have stood up in a group of Judaizers and said, oh yeah, boys, it's your good works that get this thing done. Paul could have stood up and said, it's your good works that get this thing done. But what did Paul do when given the option? He did not glory in the flesh, but rather he stood up and said, God forbid that I should glory in anything save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ whereby I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. You see, Paul could have gone any of a thousand directions, but Paul said, let me just hang right here with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may not be some great preacher. You may not be some great uh, author. You may not be somebody that the whole world of Christendom bows their knee in front of them, which is a shame anyway, but every one of us, we can keep true to the Word of God. Every one of us, we can keep true to the Word of God. And then finally, I want you to notice, I'm just going to mention this and I'll be done. We see the reality that he held. He, he understood the appointment and the aspect and the awareness of the imminence of his death. We see the record that he held. He was a good soldier. He didn't give in. He was a good sprinter. He didn't give up. And he was a good steward. He didn't give out amidst the pressures of the world. But finally, I want you to notice the reward that he held and for which he looked. He says this in verse number 8. He says, henceforth. Now, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I just want to draw your attention to that word, henceforth. It's worth noticing. Now, if Paul, couldn't, if Paul hadn't said what he said in verses 6 and 7, he couldn't have said what he said in verse 8. So, in other words, if we don't live that way, we can't say with Paul what he says in verse number 8. Now, we're going to see that we can say that if we want to live that way. But Paul says, henceforth, because of these things that I have done, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Notice the prize of the reward that he spoke of. He said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. We've often talked about the purpose of those crowns, you know. How many of you understand there's such thing as supply and demand? In other words, there's something, I mean, you know, you, you don't, don't invest in the Brussels sprout market. Amen. Because there just ain't that many folks like Brussels sprouts. If you do, God bless you. That's wonderful. But there just ain't a lot of folks that do. But, you know, if there's a huge supply of something, the demand goes down. And if there's not much of a supply, the demand goes up. Well, I, I just want to give you an economic uh, lesson and question here. What value would a crown hold in a place where there's a street made of gold, where the foundations of the city are of all manner of precious stone? 
where there's twelve gates, each one made of a single pearl. What, what value would it have? Well, it wouldn't have much value in the way of economic means. But we understand that a crown, the true value of a crown, is not in the monetary value of it, but rather in the authority that it symbolizes. See, most monarchies, when they wear a crown, I mean, it is made of all manner of precious metals and jewels. But the true authority and power of it is the fact that when the person wears that crown, it vests them with the authority of that kingdom. In other words, it's what that crown represents, not what it's made of. In the same way, when Paul says a crown of righteousness, and I do believe Paul's talking about a literal crown, but I believe that crown only holds merit because it symbolizes a life that he's lived in sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what merit would that have? What benefit would that have? so that he can sit up in heaven and brag about? No. We find an occasion in the book of Revelation when all those that are gathered around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, they begin to take off crowns that they're wearing, and they begin to cast them at his feet. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because of what the crowns represent. Not because of whatever they're made out of, but because of the reason that they're even there. You see, those people were given a life to live for Jesus Christ because of the death of Christ. They took that life and they lived it sacrificially by dying to self. In honor of that, the Lord Jesus Christ gives them a crown to say, you've lived and you've died for me. They didn't take that crown and cast it at His feet to say, I would have never had a life to live if you hadn't given given me life in the first place. It don't end there, by the way. The Bible says when he comes back, he's crowned with many crowns. Now, you believe what you want, but I believe he's wearing those crowns of the lives of those that have lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a great exchange of honor and glory taking place here. Paul says this, that God is taking notice of the life that I've lived. He gives me a crown of righteousness henceforth. Because he's noticed the way that I've lived. In other words, one of these days when he went to meet the Lord, he understood that he'd have to give an account, but he understood that there'd be honor bestowed because God had also taken an account the life that he had lived. We notice the prize, the reward. We notice the presentation of the reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. I wonder what that day is going to look like for you and me. I wonder if on that day, not because crowns have any value, but because the pleasing of our Lord Jesus Christ holds great value to us, I wonder if there will be any crowns bestowed upon us in that day. And then finally, I'm encouraged by this. He denotes the possibility of this reward. Now, not the possibility for him, because he knows he'll be getting this reward, but the possibility for you and me, because he says, and not to me only. In other words, this isn't some kind of secret club that I'm a part of. This isn't some kind of unattainable crown that that I'm gaining that no one else can have. This isn't uh, just for the Apostle Paul. He says, it's not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Now, why could he say that? It's not that he's saying that you'll get a crown if you look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. I know it's what it sounds like. That's not what he's saying. He's already given us the reason that he's getting a crown because of the way he's lived, that he's fought a good fight, that he's finished his course, that he's kept the faith. But rather, I believe what Paul is trying to convey to you and me is that those that are getting a crown will look forward to his appearing. Those that have lived such a life that they don't have to stand ashamed, they don't have to look with any concern or any doubt or any anxiety towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, wondering what the judgment seat of Christ will mean for them. No, rather they can meet it with a holy boldness 
knowing that though they may not be perfect and though there may be things that they do have to give an account for, that the whole of their saved life, by and large, they've lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's you, that's me, if we want it to be. But it's your choice and mine. Nobody make you do that. But it's your choice whether you want to live that way. Now, I know you think you've got 50 more years. But the truth is, you may not have 50 more minutes. So what are you going to do with the time that you've got? You may not win the race compared to the guy next to you, but everybody can finish their course. Are you letting off steam or are you picking up steam? Are you backing off this thing or are you getting more involved in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I believe every one of us, when we face that day, if we'll live like Paul did, not do what Paul did, but just live like Paul did, I believe we can say like he did, I'm ready to be offered.